Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. That work said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. Sibling rivalry is probably as old as the family. This toxic stew of jealousy and competition has been the cause of many bad things through the ages. Does the story of Cain and Abel ring a bell? And yet, sibling rivalry has also been a force for good. Chi Yun, the renowned classical violinist, can look back on her life now with wisdom and introspection. She can see the factors that motivated her, as a little girl in South Korea, to start developing her remarkable talent. It all started with Chi Yun becoming jealous of her older sisters. She wanted attention. She wanted applause. She wanted to win. Join us for a conversation about American dreams, pressure-packed days at Juilliard, the importance of hard work and sacrifice, and the enduring appeal of classical music. Tell me about growing up in South Korea and when you first knew that you had a special talent. Wow. Um... I grew up, let's see, I'm the youngest of four children. And by the time I was born, my two older sisters were already playing instruments, piano and the violin. And um, I grew up listening to both of my sisters practicing musical instrument in the house. So naturally, I wanted to be like my sisters and my mom seemed to be very much interested in um, in them and I thought well maybe it's because they play instruments and I want my mom to pay attention to me so so it really began with you being jealous of your sisters yes <laughs> basically jealousy can lead to great ambition I yeah in this case for sure yes I was very envious of my sisters for be- getting all my mom's attention <laughs> and my brother um, he was getting attention because he was 
the only boy. And then, then I wasn't getting much because I was another girl and I was the youngest and I was too little for my mom to be bothered with. <laughs> so yeah, that's how I started um, being interested in, in musical instruments. And I was really drawn to the piano. Um, so I begged my mom if I could just start getting lessons. And she reluctantly agreed. And, we, you know, we only had one piano in the house. And um, my oldest sister, who is five years older than me, she had been playing before I was born. <laughs> she starts, I think she started playing the piano when she was like four years old. So, and she was already entering competitions and winning them. And so it was very important for my sister to practice certain hours many hours in the day. And my mother was very annoyed that I would not get off the bench and that I wanted to, I wanted to practice more than my sister because I, in my little head, I thought, well, if I practice more, I'll get better faster at it. I will catch up with her. That's a pretty mature thought at that age. I was extremely competitive and I, I really liked the piano too. And in fact, my, when my sister was Getting her lessons, I, I would just sit underneath the piano and just watch her fingers move. And, you know, I was just fascinated with the sound and the instrument. So um, it just, I just love practicing it so much. And I love just reading music. When I learned how to read it, it was very interesting to me. And, but my mother said, your sister's going to have to practice for her competitions. And so and we only have one piano. So you're just going to have to stop practicing and in fact, play, stop playing altogether. And also, well, another reason for that was because my oldest sister who was playing the piano, she had to wear eyeglasses and my mother cried over that. She was so upset that her daughter had to wear eyeglasses. And when I saw my oldest sister wearing eyeglasses, I thought she looked so cute. And I wanted to have bad eyes too. And I was like, well, if I practice as much as my sister, maybe I will, my vision will not be as good and I will get to wear eyeglasses too. And, and my mother just couldn't bear the idea of having another daughter, yet another daughter with bad vision and wearing eyeglasses. So she said, on top of that, on top of the fact that your sister needs a piano and she needs to spend more time than you, um, I don't want you to wear eyeglasses either. So no more practicing, no more, pra no more piano period. So I was really upset. And then I looked at my other sister. Um, she was playing the violin and she just hated practicing. <laughs> she was always crying. She was like, Oh, I want to, she wants to be a ballerina. So she kept saying like, I want to be a ballerina. I don't want to have to pra practice the violin. So, and then I went to her and I said, listen, I will practice for you. And I will take over the lessons so you could do ballet. I, I don't want you to be upset all the time. And I didn't want her to be upset. And on top of that, I was kind of bored not doing anything else. I wanted to play an instrument. <laughs> so that's how I started playing the violin. And it was really my teacher who recognized that I was talented and not really my mother because she noticed that I wasn't spending as much time on the violin and... In fact, my mother told me later on, she had talked to my teacher about, you know, Chiyun is a very competitive child. Maybe if we have her enter a competition, 
maybe then she will practice because right now I feel like you might be wasting your time. And apparently he was ecstatic. The fact that like my mother wanted me to enter a competition and he said, no, she's good enough to enter any competition. Let's have her enter a competition. So I ended up entering like one of the biggest competitions in Korea. It's, it was sponsored by Korea Times and it was from the age of, you know, six till, oh no, seven, from the age of seven till 12. And I entered it when I was eight years old and I won the grand prize. <laughs> so, and that was the sort of like, I don't know, I was really happy because I got the prize money. So I got to buy Barbie dolls. Not only that, I got to perform. So I got a lot of attention from everybody, not just my parents, not just from my mom. And so I thought, oh, this is kind of cool. Maybe I'll do this every year. So then I wanted to enter competition every year and I did very well. I won just about every competition I entered <laughs> when I was a child. So that really made me, that really assured me. And I was very, I thought, oh, wow, this seems so easy and seems to work for me. So maybe I want to go to America too and study music at Juilliard because my oldest sister did that <laughs> first. She was sent to America. She had won many competitions in Korea as well. And my mother was very much interested in her career, partially because my mother actually wanted to be a pianist herself when she was growing up, but she was never given the opportunity by my, my grandmother. And, and secondly, she really loved the instrument. She loved the piano very much. If you ask her now, she'd probably say she loves the violin more. <laughs> but back then, she definitely um, loved piano. This is a very interesting family dynamic. So your mother had this unfulfilled desire to be a musician. And that desire created a rivalry. She didn't really plan the rivalry. <laughs> well, you know, at that time, I mean, this is, you know, going back like th uh, 40 years, 40 plus years and in Korea and when you know my mother was a very progressive woman and she thought that women should have a job and she should that women should not rely on men to be providers and that women if women could be financially independent and that will truly give her that will give her the true independence and she thought that the most appropriate say job for a woman will be being a music teacher because when she was in school she liked her music teacher the best and this woman she thought oh, I want to grow up and I want to be a music teacher just like her that was her idol and so when she had us girls she thought okay my girls are going to be independent and I'm going to give them the opportunity to be career women but really music teachers <laughs> in parentheses. Um, and so that's what we, we got, which was, was wonderful for us. But she was never given that and she wanted to provide, you know, what she didn't have growing up. And, you know, even now she talks about, she goes, I'm so proud of you. And she, but she still worries. And she's like, Oh, don't you want to just, don't you want to stop traveling? And, same one place and you know when she was so ecstatic when I started teaching at different universities you know when I first started teaching at um, University of Cincinnati 
um, the music division there and at Indiana University and Southern Methodist most recently. And she thought that, oh, being a professor at a university, that's wonderful job. So you could, you don't have to travel. Traveling is so difficult for people. But what she doesn't realize is that I actually love to travel. And, and in fact, I get sick when I don't travel for a week on the road constantly. I love that. I love being on the road. Take us back to what it was like growing up in South Korea in the 1970s and how that time and place nurtured you. Oh, I think I would say that like I had a great childhood. Um, so besides like the violin, I mean, I, I, for some reason, violin came easier to me. I understood like my teacher did discover that I have perfect pitch because he would, my first, I remember, uh, my first teacher very well because he made my lessons so fun. You know, he was the one who was teaching my middle sister, but then, you know, when she didn't want to practice and she didn't want to take lessons. And I, I told her, I said, I'll take your lessons. I'll take over the lessons and give me the violin. And so when he would come over to the house and he will basically ask me, so what songs did you learn to sing in your preschool or, or kindergarten? And then I will sing it. And then he said, okay, now I, you know, yesterday I, or last week we talked about notes and I already knew how to read music from learning how to play the piano. So I had kind of like skipped maybe a year of, you know, learning the basics on the violin maybe. And I also was very familiar with pitch because I had playing the piano and he discovered that I had perfect pitch. So I will sing, I will hear the music and I will know exactly which note that will be on the piano or on the sheet, on the sheet of paper or music, music paper or on the violin. And so I'll start playing it. And um, so it was really fun. And, but I didn't practice it as much as I practiced the piano, but I was better at the violin than I was. I was advancing faster at the violin, let's say. And, and at the same time, I was ice skating. I love to be, you know, I wanted to be a figure skater as well. So, in fact, I started ice skating when I was, I think, like, just about when I started walking, like, two or three. Um, when I was growing, like, when I was really little, when I was born, we had a, the house that we lived in, um, in that neighborhood, there was a big pond that will freeze over because co- winters in Korea are very, very cold. And um, so that this little pond will freeze over and the kids in the neighborhood come out with the skates and they would start ice skating. And of course my sisters and my brothers, brothers would do that. And then I, I wanted to join them, of course. So I started ice skating. I just started going on the rink with them too. And I learned how to ice skate very, very young. And so, you know, I was taking um, ice skating lessons as well. And violin lessons and I was a very busy child I think so before that Korea Times competition I had entered smaller one that I went to this um, elementary school um, that we would hold like music competition it's a private elementary school and the kids were all required to play a instrument and they will hold a competition you know whether it be piano violin cello voice clarinet flute whatever and so I entered that competition, I think when I was like, I started just playing the violin maybe a year, less than a year 
I entered that competition and I had been figure skating for like three years, four years. And I entered figure skating competition at the same time. And guess what happened? <laughs> I did really well with a violin competition. I won first prize. And then the figure skating, I didn't even pass the first round. <laughs> because I was only practicing my program, you know, twirling and jumping and with the music dancing to it. Not the basics. But the first round was preliminary were, were always about the basics. You have to go around doing this like little figure eight, you know, when you're on your skates. I don't know if they still do that. They might not. So that first big Korea-wide competition you won. Yeah. Put, put me back in that auditorium and how it felt to be a little girl and to know you were doing something that affected these people. Oh, well, I mean, I was so excited to be on stage. And I, I don't know, I... I was not nervous. I was so happy. I was so happy to be there. And I also, I remember we were all told, all the participants in the competition, we were told to sort of wait or rehearse, practice in this one big room. And I remember there were so many, you know, children my age. And I thought, oh, this is so fun. We're all playing the same piece. We're all practicing it. And I just wanted to show off. I mean, I was a little bratty kid, just one, you know, extremely competitive. And I was very confident, even though I didn't practice that much. So for some reason, like I was so looking forward to playing in front of public. And my mom said that I sounded better than she's ever heard me practice at home when I was actually on stage. And, you know, of course, my teacher was ecstatic and he was like, well, I've been telling, he was telling my mom all along that he thought that I was extremely talented and my mom just didn't believe him because she thought that I didn't practice enough to be to be a professional musician. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on American Achievers. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to access our exclusive premium content, visit us at americanachievers.us or search for American Achievers at patreon.com. For a few bucks a month, you get to access our monthly email newsletter, the monthly American Achievers Extra audio program, and the quarterly Zoom show, American Achievers Green Room, where you get to interact with one of our accomplished and intriguing guests. For details, visit AmericanAchievers.us and click on the premium membership button. Want to learn about my eight books, including biographies of Paul Bear Bryant, Joe Montana, and Francis Gary Powers? Visit KeithDonovan.com or your favorite bookstore. My latest, Speed, The Life of a Test Pilot and the Birth of an American Icon. It's all about Bob Gilliland and the development of the super-secret SR-71 Blackbird spy plane. Now back to the program. Was there a moment of recognition with your mother that, okay, she's really talented? Yeah, that competition did it. <laughs> when I won grand prize, not just first prize for my grade, like they would choose first prize for seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds, and then have us all compete again against one another. And then I won like the basically all, you know, the 
elementary school division altogether. And I was like second grader. So my mother was like, whoa, I had no idea my daughter was that good. Because there were other students who had been studying with university professors, but I had been studying with a neighborhood teacher. My teacher was nobody, really. So I think he got pretty famous after I won that competition, though. (laughs) How did you win the competition to come to America and Juilliard? Well, um, after that competition, Korea Times competition, uh, my mother was very happy and she thought, okay, well, then I'm going to take Chiyun to great teacher. She had heard about this new teacher who had just come from um, graduating from Juilliard. She had studied with Ivan Golanian, who's like a legendary prog- uh, pedagogue and a violin. And so she came to, Ju- she graduated from Juilliard and she had won Jacques Thibault competition, you know, international competition, but she decided that she wanted to come back to Korea and have her own class of young, talented students and give back. So I became one of her first 10 students. And her name is Nam Yoon Kim. And she is considered probably the most famous teacher in South Korea. And her students are winning competitions all over the world, like Tchaikovsky, Queen Elizabeth, um, Hanover, you know, Indianapolis. I mean, you name it. So her students are doing very well all over the all of the all over the world but I have to, I was one of the first 10 students she had I went to study with her when I was eight years old and she was still in her I think late 20s maybe maybe 30 not even, I don't think she was 30 years old yet at the time so I studied with her and she as I told you like I love performing and you know, if I would enter a competition every year, she would say, well, if you enter this competition, if you do well, then you get a opportunity to play recital or play concerto with a symphony orchestra in Korea. And my parents were, of course, very happy about that because that, that meant that I get um, performance opportunity and it would be the winning prize. They wouldn't have to pay to rent an orchestra, rent a hall or anything like that. In fact, I'll actually get paid to perform. So they were very happy about this. So, so I started entering competition immediately. Like when I was nine years old, I entered competition, which I won, then gave me a recital opportunity. 10, I won another competition, 11, 12. And then I thought, you know, I wanted to come to America, just like my oldest sister who was studying at Juilliard. I, so I said to my mom, I said, I'll practice a lot more if you tell me that you you will send me to Juilliard too. I want to go to America. I've done very well in Korea. I've won all the competitions. Now I want to go to America. Now, what did it mean to you to go to America? Oh, I mean, I thought that 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 would meant like, you know, America that I saw on TV was like Disney World, Disneyland. I thought that everybody was, you know, so nice all the time, sunny, you know, never rains in America. Well, it was a big culture shock, of course, when I came to Manhattan in 1983 because it wasn't quite Disneyland that I hoped. Set the scene for us. Manhattan in 1983. (laughs) Um, Well, so I arrived at JFK Airport in 1983. And in those days, there were no direct flights like there are today from Korea. So I, w- I had to, 
I think like either, I think they were flying to Seattle first, West Coast, somewhere in the West Coast. I think it was Seattle. Because I remember it was like super rainy too and kind of cold. And maybe it was San Francisco. I don't know. Some big city in the, the West Coast. And I, I was coming, I was flying with my father. My mother was already in, in New York with my oldest sister. And my father was traveling with me. And uh, we had to stay overnight at a hotel and then fly the next day to New York. Um, so I remember like going to, uh, my dad taught me how to use fork and knife, you know, and eat steaks properly, like all that good table manners. Like he taught me that when we were growing up in Korea, like when I was single digit age, but I actually got to really practice in an American steak restaurant. <laughs> that was memorable. I still remember that. I don't know which city it was, but I remember my dad said, okay, now you're in America. Now I want you to eat properly. What I, how I taught you. <laughs> so clearly your father wanted you to assimilate. Well, my father just wanted us to have good manners, I think. And so then we flew to New York and New York, Jeff K. I don't know. It was like sometime in June. It was very hot and muggy already. And just, it was so crowded and people were not very nice. I didn't speak a word of English. And I was just so scared. Everything just looked just hectic. And it seemed like, you know, nobody was helping me. I don't, I don't, I didn't know what people were screaming about. It just seemed like everybody was yelling at each other and it was very chaotic. It's, <laughs> so I was kind of disappointed. I was like, Oh, this is not the America that I dreamed of. And, but it was exciting to be in another country and scary at the same time. Um, I, I think we came, my uh, parents were renting an apartment for my sister and I to stay in, in Manhattan and they wanted us to live in a very safe neighborhood, which was 56th street and Broadway, which was, you know, at the time considered pretty safe. It's very busy street. I was so scared to go outside because I didn't speak any English and I thought, if somebody kidnaps me and I scream, people will not pay attention to me because everybody screams in New York and people are crazy. <laughs> that was my impression of Manhattan. Um, we basically dropped off our bags and then I had to go to Aspen Music Festival because that's where my, my teacher, Dorothy DeLay, she was holding a music festival there for the whole summer. So... Yeah, so I went to Aspen, and that's when I thought, oh, Aspen is really America. It looks like America. Everybody's so friendly. The weather is nice. Mountains are nice. Clean air, flowers everywhere. So I spent, like, the whole summer there at Aspen Music Festival, you know, taking lessons with Dorothy DeLay, you know, who was a, this incredible teacher, it's that Plumman had studied with her and, you know, Midori, all the famous violinists you named today are her former students. You know, she passed away in um, early 2000s, but um, 2006. What's the most important thing she taught you? Um, she was extremely kind lady. And I would say the most, and she taught me so many important things in life lessons but 
I would say, you know, when it comes to music, having my own voice that, um, that I shouldn't try to imitate anybody, that you should really find your own voice, really start to think about what music means to you. Um, she trained me to think like an adult. Like she treated me like an, a grown up when I was only 13 years old. So she taught me responsibility. She taught me uh, so many things. I don't know. Just how to express yourself through music, but being very honest about it. And really knowing yourself well, knowing your weakness and strength. And that will guide me, that will teach me how to work on my weakness and how to develop my strength and be better at it. But through, you know, smiles and she was an extremely kind person, never yelled at anybody, never yelled at me ever. And she always made me feel like I knew what I was doing, even though I didn't. She would always ask me like what I thought about this place. And I was like, wow, I was just waiting for her to tell me how to play it. I never thought about it. She says, sweetie pie, you gotta, you know, tell me what you're imagining. What kind of image do you see it? You know, she will always, yeah, her lessons were like many performances for me because um, in my mind, I thought, oh, my goodness, Miss DeLay probably has heard this piece played by Mr. Perlman, like, perfectly. How am I going to ever compete with that? She's going to listen to my playing. She would think, oh, this girl has no chance. So I better prepare as well as, as if I'm entering a competition or playing a concert. So for me, like, having a, being in front of her, playing for her, for lessons, were like playing for concerts, which was very good, um, you know, important motivating factor. Was there a process where you evolved from being just intuitive and feeling the notes to something that is more artistically deliberate? It's an ongoing process. I don't think I've ever, I, mean, I don't know if anybody really reaches, oh, this is it. But it would be like, oh, I think that's, that's how I feel. Like, that's what I want to express. And that's, I think, why she was asking me questions rather than trying to tell me how to do anything. I mean, I know how to play the notes, but, you know, like, what does that phrase mean to you? Like, that kind of question, which was huge question for a 13-year-old to process, because <laughs> I was only used to hearing other teachers tell me, oh, you here, you got to play louder here, softer here. Maybe do this fingering, that bowing. You know, more technical things, but not really uh, abstract, you know, or image. Like, what am I thinking about when I'm playing this passage? What does that, what kind of emotion does that evoke you? None of that. I never really thought of it. I never even, that was not even part of my process. It was just like, oh, I got to play the right notes, good sound, good rhythm. Done, you know, it's one dimensional, but she really made it very much more deep for a young girl. And I, I mean, I still do it. I, I do that with my students when I teach them too. And sometimes it throws them off 
And some students really like that. Some students are not used to it, but you got to get started on it. And I got started on it rather early in my, uh, my career. And at that same time, you're having to learn how to speak English, right? <laughs> yes, but I think when I was 13 years old, maybe it came a little bit easier than if I was 23 years old, maybe. Um, and also the fact that I, I'm gregarious by nature didn't hurt. But because I was so proud at the same time, I was like basically a mute in my school, except with one friend of mine who was also, she, she was half French, half American. She spoke, of course, English perfectly because she was born in this country, but her mother was French and she will speak French. And she, so she kind of liked the fact that I was from Korea and she had more, she was more sympathetic with my bad grammar and so forth. So she, I had a very good friend who was, this is in my eighth grade. Um, she was my eighth grader in my class and she was my best friend and I'm still friends with her. Um, but she was very helpful with my English. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. What was it about the experience at Juilliard that took you to that next level? Well, again, I have to say, uh, being around all those incredibly talented um, young musicians, especially the ones who are similar in my age, there were like 12-year-olds, 13, 14-year-olds from all over the world, from Russia, from Korea, well, from the uh, and all of the states in America, Israel, you know, you name it, China, Japan. And I was stimulated by them. I, it really motivated me to work harder because I, I thought that I was pretty good. You know, I had won all these competitions in Korea. I thought I was not bad. And then I come to Juilliard and everybody's so much better than me. So I was like, wow, I need to work a lot harder. So I'm, I was competition or that competitive environment was very healthy for me. When did you begin to feel like an American? Oh, my goodness. I mean, I don't know. I think I always felt much more comfortable being in America than, than anything else. I mean, I came here when I was 13. So it's more like I grew up in America, you know, like um, because... I mean, I do have fond memories in Korea, too. It's hard to say. Feeling like I'm American. Well, I guess when I was traveling, okay, so when I started traveling a lot for concerts to other countries, <laughs> that's when I really appreciated being, uh, being an American and living in America. And I missed, I, will, I, I couldn't wait to get back to, to New York. Like New York was my home for the first 20 years. So I, I'll be traveling to Japan for a concert tour, two weeks, playing 10 concerts in 14 days. Totally exhausted all over Japan. I couldn't wait to go home to New York. And then the minute I arrived at JFK Airport, I was like, oh, I feel so much more comfortable. This is home. I'll be in Germany playing concerts all over Germany. Italy, go, you know, 
travel around France and then come home. And I was, I couldn't wait to go back home to <laughs> America. Let's talk about that transformation. You told me about 1983 when, like so many people, you landed in New York and it socked you in the face, the intensity of it. And yet you love it now. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I, I think New York is a fascinating city. And I am so grateful that I have had lived, I've had the experience of living there um, for 20 years, which is a long time, which I'm, it's invaluable. I mean, it's, you know, incredible. Um, when I go back now, I still appreciate the energy that it has in the city, but not necessarily miss living in New York City. But I love the fact that I could still travel there and I have place to stay and, you know, my family's still there. I have a lot of friends there. And in fact, you know, I've been to New York, my, well, like almost every month this year, except for this month and next month, it's just because I'm going to be traveling nonstop for festivals. But yeah, I was in New York just last month. The teeming ambition of New York clearly attracts some people and scares some people to death. It can be overwhelming, especially when you first get there. But I think, um, you know, if you're there with a clear purpose, just like anywhere, really, if you're anywhere with a clear purpose, really, that's what you just focus on. And, you know, you, you get wrapped up in that. And that keeps you busy, motivated, and focused. So, okay, so, and New York provides a lot, you know, there are so many people who are there with clear purpose. So being surrounded by that kind of intensity could work for some people and work against some people. I understand that. I see that. I see what you're saying. Because at Juilliard, there were, you know, clearly some of the kids, some of the students who were in school with me who just clearly did not enjoy being in New York nor at Juilliard, even in pre-college division, you know, which is the um, high school, middle school students. And some of them did not continue with their, with their um, instrument. They went into different careers, you know, from college on. So I, I understand what you're saying. So when did this ambition to become a concert violinist, when did that begin to congeal? Was that at Juilliard? It was at Juilliard. And also, I would say probably this happened more quickly, or it really motivated me a lot sooner because of my father's financial situation. My father was a pretty successful small business um, owner in Korea and we lived comfortably and he was able to send, you know, two daughters abroad to study in America for two years. And then the whole family immigrated because my father didn't like us being apart so much. And so he moved to America, but he didn't speak English. He didn't do, he didn't know, he couldn't be a businessman and continue doing what he was doing in Korea. So he had to start all over again, basically. And he owned a liquor store um, and he's not even, he doesn't even enjoy drinking himself. So, you know, you could imagine it's just the business just flopped immediately. Um, 
and he was accumulating debt. And uh, he sat me down when I was junior in high school and he said, this is what, three, four years after, yeah, three years, maybe three years um, after I had come to America and family had immigrated like two years before, but he had just spent all the money that he you know, brought and he was like, this is not going well. And I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to pay for your college education. And he said, you've been in this country now a few years. Why don't you have a manager? Why aren't you playing concerts and making money already? So that was like, whoa, I'm only 16, 17. <laughs> but um, I didn't like the idea of not being able to go to Juilliard College because my dad couldn't pay for it. Um, so, and I thought, well, if my dad's business not, is not doing well now, it's probably not going to do very well. Maybe in the future, I'm going to have to find a way to pay for my own expenses of living in America. So I talked to my teacher and I said, you know, maybe I should start entering competitions because that will give me a chance to play concerts. And when I play concerts, I make, I get paid. And so she and I sat down and came up with a list of competitions that were coming up. And one of them, the very first one that was coming up, the closest one was the Young Concert Artist International Auditions. And so I entered that. And then she said, you know, many of the students enter it and they keep entering it until they get it. It's a manage. It's like getting a manager. So then you will get many concerts, um, but there's no guarantee that you will win it immediately but I want it immediately. So I didn't have to enter any other competitions because I started concertizing. And that was when I was freshman in college. That, that set me up and I was extremely, I'm very lucky. You know, things like, things have, I'm a huge believer in things happening for a reason. And I feel like, you know, my dad sat me down like that day that he talked to me about money. I mean, I, you know, I grew up not worrying about it ever. And I had no idea that my family will ever come to that kind of situation ever. But when he sat me down, it was a kind of extremely shocking, but that got me desperate <laughs> and also extremely motivated. And so, yeah, winning Young Contra Artist at 18 years old and start concertizing immediately. And I was going to, I was barely making my classes during the week and then concertizing on weekends. So I'll be traveling like from, you know, Thursday, Friday, sometimes Friday, and then play concerts Saturday, Sunday, come on Monday morning and then go to school again. And it was extremely busy, but, but also those were very crucial years. And, you know, I developed my career seriously from there on. Have you ever stopped to think about the connection between that desperation and your ultimate success? Um, well, I mean, I, yeah, there were moments that I was like, wow, is this like what I really love to do? Because it was hard. You know, like I really didn't have, like, let's say, like that much fun. You know, a lot of college kids have like their fun years of being in college. I never experienced that. Um, and also being in high school too, like that was really intense because I was like, wow, I got to enter competition. And I, and I was doing competitions even when I first came here, like, you know, like my first competition in America was 
auditioning to play with New York Philharmonic for a young people's concert. I was 13 years old. I had just come from Korea in June and the auditions were in November. So, and I entered it, I wanted, I played with New York Philharmonic the following year, 1984 in March. So it was like, it was hectic. I like almost didn't have really time to think, am I doing this for me or for my parents or for something else? You know, I was just on the go all the time. So I think I did think about like, am I really happy doing this? Maybe like when I was, you know, in college. And I remember like walking back to my apartment um, on Columbus Avenue. And, you know, you go through like the restaurants, windows of restaurants. And I'll see people like eating, you know, at restaurants, like beautiful um, restaurants and it looked very romantic settings and I was like with my violin case I'll see my reflection on the on the window and then I'll be like well I gotta go back home and practice and pack for this weekend's trip <laughs> and I was like wow I wish I could sit down at that restaurant and have dinner too or have a date date night you know so I miss that but thinking back now I mean if I didn't have that, I wouldn't be where I am today. And if I didn't go through that period, I don't know if I will be truly in love with music now. I'm more in love with it. I'm so sure of, I'm, I'm extremely happy being a musician and having a career in music now more than ever, you know? What is it about performing that lights you up? Oh, I don't know. Just sound of you know, music, just sound of that I could create on my violin and and the sound that I hear back from other musicians on stage. And just as a whole, I mean, I, I can't live, I can't imagine my life without it. I can't imagine. Um, yeah, I mean, just it just makes me so elated. I feel so light and comforted. It's very comforting um, feeling. Most comforting feeling ever. And then also like being with people and seeing people like when I, I, if I make one person happy or, you know, seeing the reactions of the audience members and getting that back, that reassurance back, you know, that's also extremely like, I feel so fortunate and so lucky and so honored that I could do this. I'm so grateful. Sense of gratitude, like, that music could give me that, and that's the biggest form of happiness for me. When did you get to the point where you could say, okay, I gave up this and this and this, but I have this because of it? to see the connection between hard work, perseverance, all of these things, and achievement. When did I see it? I see probably more now, now that I'm older. Um, but, I mean, I remember being, you know, for example, like, if I didn't play the violin, would I have been invited to play at the White House? <laughs> Meet President Clinton. I mean, seriously, like, where and how would... How would I have that kind of opportunity? I met Henry Kissinger in Germany when I played a concert there. I mean, 
things like that. President Ford I met in Palm Springs when I played with San Francisco Symphony, things like that. Like I could not have imagined this Korean girl from like I come from middle class Korean family. If I didn't play the violin, <laughs> I would never meet people like that. And the fact that I could like even go to the White House, I played in the East Room, you know, I was on TV, HBO, like, like that kind of opportunity would have never happened <laughs> in a million years. If I didn't play the violin, if I, I was not a musician. So yeah, I'm extremely grateful, you know, and I'm, I'm able to do what I really love to do and make a living out of it. I am darn lucky. That's what I am. Tell me about playing at the White House. Oh, my God. That was an incredible opportunity. So I was playing in, in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, the night before, having to play at the White House. Of course, you know, I had to fly, like, I think it was like a red-eye flight, you know, like all night long. And then I get to Dallas Airport, and then I get picked up in a limousine, and then we go have a rehearsal. And then there was, it was a National Medal of the Art Ceremony during the day. And then in the evening for the black tie event, it was the first black tie event that President Clinton and um, Hillary Clinton hosted at the White House in the East Room. So it was incredible. I was the first sort of act of like I was to feature, uh, um, present, represent the future musicians of America. And I had just recorded West Side Story Suites, which I had commissioned one of my friends at Juilliard to arrange for violin and piano. So I was playing that, and I saw this beautiful Steinway piano that was commissioned by President Kennedy, and it's extra long, and it's got, it, it's ornate, it's beautiful, light color, and the whole stage, it fills the whole stage up, the piano does, and then I'll be standing in the middle of the stage where actually President Clinton had this big podium and he had been welcoming the guest speaking. And I was supposed to be the first act of the music, musical evening part. So I come on stage and I see this big podium, like right where I'm supposed to be standing and performing. So I said, well, could somebody move this podium for me? And it was President Clinton Vice President Al Gore and Isaac Stern, all three of these like extremely powerful men in the world, getting up just because I asked the podium to be moved. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of cool. <laughs> um, because the, I guess the, what do you call those people, security people? Um, they didn't really get the note that they were supposed to move that. There was no stage crew, I guess, <laughs> in the East Room. And the podium, I mean, President Clinton is like 6'4". He's extremely tall. Um, there's a picture of us together, like I'm looking at, like when we're talking, and he's ahead, and like I think I come to maybe his shoulder. I'm not sure. Not even, maybe. He's extremely tall. And um, he was very, very kind and yeah, it was really incredible event. Barbara Walters was there. Angelica Houston, I remember she was there. Um, they were all greeting us afterwards. And there was dancing in the evening after our musical part. 
Do you allow yourself to to savor a moment like that, or oh yeah, how do you do that and pay attention to the job you have to do and and not get overwhelmed by the moment? Well, I mean, I first of all, I couldn't believe like how beautiful the room was and the piano was, and then I'm here like playing for this like world dignitaries and you know President Clinton, like my favorite president, and I was extremely honored and I was so excited <laughs> and I thought I, I mean all I could do is really play the violin what else can I do I don't know how to speak well not a good public speaker so might as well do what I can do best and that is to play the violin and make them happy for that 15 minutes of my performance you played so many great venues across the world including Carnegie Hall how do you keep challenging yourself musically oh it is always a challenge Music is so challenging, and that's probably why I'm still at it. And that keeps me going and keeps me on my toes all the time. It's like being in a good relationship. You know, it's like the most perfect relationship. (laughs) It keeps challenging me, and when I do it well, I get rewarded handsomely. And it's always, you don't know what to expect. You have no idea what the outcome is going to be, but you try your best always. Speaking of relationships, you have a a violin with uh, an interesting heritage. Yeah, it's rumored to have been buried with one of its owners for, you know, a very, very long time. And that's maybe I'm thinking that's why it's in such mint condition and it looks it has no wear and tear, despite the fact that it is 350 years old this year. It was made in 1669 in Cremona, Italy, by a maker, Francesco Ruggeri. And it's in mint condition, and I, I love it. And I met, when I was playing a concert in Ilat, Israel, a few years ago, I met a tall gentleman who came up to me after question and answer session that I had with the audience after my concert performance. Um, he had told me that his father was an avid collector and an amateur violinist who also owned one of Francesco Ruggeri's instruments, which was incredible because Francesco Ruggeri did not make too many instruments in his lifetime and fear survived over the years. And um, that his father had wondered about 1669 Ruggeri and that he was very happy that it was in good hands because it had been rumored to be buried. <laughs> so, and I said, no, it's with me now. <laughs> not going to be going underground anytime soon. Did that creep you out the first time you heard that story? No, I thought it was extremely fascinating. I wish that I had taken his name and contact number and all that. He was an American man. And, you know, I'm trying to still like talk about it a lot over the years so that maybe one day he would like email me or write to my website or something. So what is it about that violin that's so perfect for you? Oh, it was just immediate. Um, as soon as I play, I started playing on it. As soon as it, I, um, I touched it, and I, it, it had incredible range of colors and tone. Was so beautiful, and it just felt so natural to play that violin for me. It was the most natural instrument that I've ever touched, and I've tried many different instruments. I had been looking for a while, so yeah, it was. It's not even. I can't even explain in words, I guess. It's a feel you get in a more 
time I spent on it, you know, more and more I'm fascinated, more and more I'm in love with it. And yeah, it is ultimate boyfriend of mine. <laughs> Your schedule is, is jam-packed with concert dates around the world. Do you ever lose the excitement? No, I'm, I mean, I'm very grateful that I can do these dates and that I am, you know, still being asked to play concerts and I have my independence. Um, I love to travel. I, I could maybe count in one hand, like flight delays or cancellations that I've had in over what, 38 years? Has it been 38 years? Wait, 40 years? How many? I don't know. I started traveling 30 years, over 30 years of traveling you know, professionally. So I am extremely grateful. Um, knock on wood, you know, wow. <laughs> just the other day I was flying back from, from a concert uh, from North Carolina and my flight to Dallas was canceled, but I didn't, I wasn't coming for an, any you know, concert, immediate concerts or anything like that. And I had a few days, in fact, a week off. And I was like, well, I could be stuck in one more day in like Lure, North Carolina. It's beautiful here, you know, but like that rarely happens for my concerts ever. I mean, I've been extremely lucky. I'm born to do this. I think this is my calling for sure. No doubt about it. No doubt, zero doubt. Thanks to Elaine McGibbony and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You, too, can become an American Achiever.